Take our Bibles now to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. And this evening we begin the second of three major sections that are in the book of Revelation. And John is told to write about three specific things. He was to write about things that he had just seen. And those are the things that we read about in chapter 1. And that's where John had this face-to-face meeting with Christ. And the description of him there is such that he's a person that you want to meet, or he may be a person that you don't want to meet, depending upon the condition of your heart. Then the second thing that he was told to write about is things which are. And that's where we begin tonight. And this is where John records a message that Jesus gave to seven churches that were in Asia, Asia Minor as we would call it today. And uh, the Lord specifically talked to seven churches located there, real churches, And yet the problems and the praises for those churches are indicative of things that we find in churches of all ages. Then, uh, as we look at these things that are, uh, this covers chapters 2 and 3. And in chapter 4, we come to the the next part of the Revelation where John is told to write the things which will come hereafter. But before we can get into chapter 4, we have to go through chapters 2 and 3. And I need to give you a warning about this is because this is where a lot of people get bogged down in Revelation. We've just had that glorious presentation of Jesus in chapter 1. We have all these heightened expectations that that we'll get into the futuristic things that that are going to happen in chapter 4. But again, we have to go through chapters 2 and 3. And people fall out of the study of Revelation right here in chapters 2 and 3 because Jesus addresses problems that are in these churches. And that's why I say you may not be too happy when I get done with the message tonight because there are problems that are presented for churches. And these problems exist today. And so Jesus addresses those problems because when he finally comes on that resurrection morning and he breaks through the clouds, he wants to find churches that are ready for his arrival. So he has a message to seven churches. We'll discuss each one of those churches as we go through chapters 2 and 3. And I'm sure that we will identify some problems that might even be right here in Brian Baptist Church. The first church that we're going to talk about is the church at Ephesus. They're the first one to receive their message. So let's stand up and let's read about this. Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse number 1. Unto the angel of the church at Ephesus write, and the angel there is the pastor of the church, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil, and thou hast tried them which say they are apostles, and are not, and hast found them liars, and hast borne, and hast patience, and for my name's sake hast labored, and hast not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, And do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, the time we have to spend together tonight. We ask you, Lord, that you'd help us as we look into this message to this church at Ephesus. Help us, Lord, to learn something that we can take right into our church and be aware of and that we might be better followers of you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated.
Ephesus is the first church that received the message that Jesus gave to the seven churches. Uh, by all accounts, Ephesus, the church at Ephesus at least, was the most prominent of all of these churches, and it was located in the most prominent city. Ephesus was a, was a great city in that time, and of the circuitous journey of the person who was to take these letters to the seven churches, all seven are going to get, get, to get a letter. First, he goes to the church at Ephesus. Now, this was a city that at the time of the Apostle John was possibly populated by as many as 500,000 people. I don't want to go into the details about the city itself tonight because when we studied the book of Ephesians, we went through it then. We talked about how important that the city of Ephesus was to Rome and then, of course, how, how it was also important to the spread of the gospel. But what we really should note particularly here is the religious life of this city because that figures into what Jesus has to say to this church. One of the seven wonders of the ancient world was located in Ephesus. And many of you know that was the Temple of Diana. It was a magnificent structure. It was over 400 feet long, 180 feet wide, and six stories high. And uh, being one of the seven wonders of the world, you could imagine that there was a lot of attention given to it. So that was really the focal point of the city. And a lot of the activities that, that went on in the city took place around the worship of this temple. This was the place that Paul visited in about 56 A.D., which would have been about 40 years before the Revelation. And if you remember from reading the book of Acts, we learned that, uh, as our study, we studied Acts, that Paul spent three years in this city. He taught the Word of God. He established a very strong church in the city of Ephesus. Later on, uh, Timothy became the pastor of the church at Ephesus. And we learned through uh, early church writings that the Apostle John spent the last years of his life in Ephesus. So understanding what a good, strong church that Paul uh, established there leads us in great salutation that uh, Jesus gives to this church at Ephesus. Now look at verses 1 through 3. It says, Unto the angel of the church at Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. And remember once again, the seven stars, that refers to the, the different pastors of these churches, seven different pastors, and the seven golden candlesticks represent these seven churches. We found out that information in the last verse of chapter 1. Then he goes on in verse number 2, he says, I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil, and thou hast tried them which are apostles, and are not, and hast found them liars." and has borne, and has patience, and for my name's sake has labored, and has not fainted. Now, I want to notice first in the salutation, the Lord's recognition of their faith. I mean, if you really wanted to see a faithful church, this was a church that was faithful. Of all the churches that were in Asia, this is a church that you would go to, and you would find a very faithful church. There's a section in every one of these letters that deals with commendation of the church. All of them except one receive some kind of a commendation. At least there are some good things that are going on in these churches, and the Lord reminds them of that. He praises them for that. He always gives praise for the parts that are right. So let's notice some things about this church that were right. First of all, we would see that their servants' service was diligent. Here in, in, the, in these verses we find they have works, they have labor, and they have patience. Works, of course, is a reference, a reference to the good deeds that they did. Labor is a reference to the untiring way that they went about those good deeds. 
And when it speaks of patience, it means they had a willingness to keep up those deeds. They kept working, even though there was much opposition in that city. Christians were hated there, and yet they continued to serve the Lord diligently in works and labor and patience. So that's a great beginning to the letter. The Lord stands in recognition for what this church was doing right. And I'm particularly drawn to that word labor that's in the middle of that, of that first phrase. These are people that had work to do. There was work for the Lord to do, and they didn't lay down on the job. These are people that, that were willing to, uh, to, to work for the Lord and not to observe, to sit down and watch what every, uh, everybody else was doing. And in the days of, of our modern church, the times that we have right now, many Christians simply have a spectator mentality. They come to church just to watch what everybody else is doing. And so, uh, as representative of all churches in all ages, in an age where we live, where people come to watch the show, the church at Ephesus was not like that. They weren't content to sit back and just get a weekly dose of entertainment at church. When I first started writing these sermons on the seven churches of Asia, my, my, I had in my mind that what I would do, I, I just really don't want to be too negative as I go through these seven churches. I really want to keep things positive. I want to be upbeat. I don't want to say anything too bad about things that are going maybe on in our church or even churches that are around us. But as I read more, as I study more, as I think more about it, you have to bring up the bad parts because it's impossible for us to concentrate simply on the good things of the church because there is a warning along with these commendations. There's an opposite side to what they were doing right. So the example for us as a church today is to be a working church. We're, we're to be a church that stays busy, and that means, I think, that every member of the congregation ought to be engaged in the ministry of the church. And every, every person ought to have something to do with the service that goes on here. I've never heard anybody say that our services are particularly entertaining. Uh, we don't have a lot of show and flash like they have in many churches, and, and folks, I'm content to be that way. That doesn't bother me at all that we don't have that. I mean, it, it might be good sometimes to have the great big productions that go on in church sometimes, but I'm afraid that churches who do that, many times the gospel gets lost in all of the entertainment and the other things that they do. I remember when I first came to California, I was uh, visiting around in different churches. I remember a church that I went to in Vallejo, and, and there was an interesting thing that happened in the middle of the service. They're right in the middle of the song service, and everything stops. And all the attention goes to the stage, and they start to put on a drama presentation. And I noticed how the people were just interested in that, how they were enthralled about that, how they were entertained with what was going on. I don't know what's wrong with me, but when I go to church, I come to hear a good gospel sermon. I mean, just a plain old gospel sermon. I come to church because I want to get food for my soul. And I was looking for a church at that time where I could serve the Lord, where I could be a part of that, where, where there's some, uh, something that I could do. I could be a part of the worship. And I wasn't interested in watching people entertain me. But that's what goes on in church today. Now, I think maybe my expectations are just too high for something because I think when you go to church, you need to hear from the Word of God. Then I attended another church. Uh, this one was in Petaluma. And, and that church was so bad that it was the first time I ever went to church and I just wished that I stayed home in bed. It was that bad. Well, the church at Ephesus was not like that. Here was a church that had untiring activity that was going on. They were engaged in untiring service. So they're working and they're working and they're working. 
And their purpose is to keep that church going in a very wicked city. So they kept working for the Lord. And so Jesus commended them for that. And so he says in verse 3, I know about your works. I know what you're doing. You're tireless. And you're doing these things in my name. So there's not a problem in this church of lazy Christians. That wasn't there. These aren't Christians who won't get out of bed on Sunday morning because they're just too tired to go to Sunday school. This is a church that had their Sunday school classes. People showed up for Pioneer Club if they had something like that. They had their Bible studies that went on during the week. When it came time for Wednesday night services, they didn't say, well, we're just too tired to get out and go listen to another gospel message. So they showed up for things that were going on. And the Lord knew that, and he commended them for it. But that's not all he has to say about the church. I mean, they served diligently, but also they were strong in doctrine. It's a church that's strong on doctrine. I mentioned on uh, several occasions before that when we were talking about the church of Ephesus, that it was really a remarkable church. Paul wrote a letter to this church also, and we all know what that is. It's the letter, the book of Ephesians. In fact, the church at Ephesus is the only church that had two letters written by two different apostles to the church. So Paul wrote to this church, and he gave them some of the strongest doctrine that you'll find anywhere in the Bible. Do you remember when we started the book of Ephesians? Uh, some of you here that at that time. I said there are two books that you really need to get under your belt to get a strong understanding and a good foundation of what the Bible teaches. Those two books are Romans and Ephesians. And in some ways, in many ways, they're complementary to one another. So Paul was able to write to the Ephesians, and he wrote some things that were very hard to understand. Today, we turn to the book of Ephesians, and before we get four verses read in the first chapter, people are already arguing and trying to explain away what Paul so clearly teaches. And so instead of teaching or taking the apostle at his word, uh, churches and preachers have been plunged into a great controversy over the subjects of election and predestination. And they're trying to figure out how Paul possibly could have said what he said and meant what he said. Never mind that, that we find the same doctrines that Peter talked about them and John speaks of it. The Old Testament is full of it. People just try to figure out how are they going to get rid of this doctrine. Well, the church at Ephesus didn't do that. They were a good church, a strong church, and they took what Paul said. Forty years later, when when, when Jesus speaks to this church through the apostle John, they're still preaching the same things. And Jesus says about them, "You you have enough knowledge, you have enough strength in the Word of God that you can try people that come into your congregation, and you know when they're not speaking the truth. You know when they're preaching something that hasn't been delivered uh, in the faith by the apostles of Christ. He says, you know about that, and you found them to be liars, and you're not going to have any part of that. Now, we contrast that to what we find in the church today, and today, any doctrine that floats is fair game. Nobody goes back to the Bible anymore to see what the Bible really has to say. And largely, the problem is that churches have abandoned the Bible And so what they're preaching now in most churches that you go to are current events and political political things. So they've got a social agenda and not a saving agenda. But not this church. This is a church that was still doctrinal. It's one that could take the meat of God's word. And they didn't have to have the preacher get up to them and chew up his message into 47 different illustrations on every single point and try to pound the message uh, to a pulp so they could swallow what he's saying. You know, I was thinking about that just the other day. What's wrong with preaching in Baptist churches today? When you listen to many preachers today, they've got 
so many different illustrations. They got illustration after illustration, and they stick a little bit of point of Scripture in between there just so they can say they're talking about the Bible. We have too many preachers that are just trying to pound the Word into a pulp. I don't mind using illustrations. I think it's a good thing for us to do every now and then. You need those things. But my opinion is that every illustration takes away from the, from the exposition of God's Word. And so there are some preachers who will take their illustrations and they beat them to death and, and the, uh, the people never have the opportunity or don't take the opportunity to think on and to chew on what the preacher is preaching. So they never have to think about doctrine for themselves. The preacher has just ground everything up so finely that people can drink it through a straw. But not this church. This is a church that's strong in doctrine. And Paul couldn't have written the strong stuff that he wrote in the book of Ephesians unless they were, these were people that were ready to receive it and they were thinkers and they were students of God's Word. Now that leads me, I think, to two very important points about this church. Two very important things. Number one was they had no compromise in morality. These are good students of God's Word. And good students, students will learn to be moral people. Here we have people living in a wicked, idolatrous city. Sexual perversion is everywhere, even in the worship. I mean, that that was expected. Not only did they do it, that it was expected that that in in the pagan worship that you would enter into all kinds of the sexual immorality. You can tell when people are strong in doctrine because they learn morality. They don't give in to the lust of the flesh. So I have no doubt that when they had a church service at Ephesus, that half the people didn't or people didn't come with half of their clothes on. Women didn't sit down in the pews at Ephesus and you could see all the way up to their thighs because their dresses were so short. There, there was not any, any see-through clothing there. There weren't any plunging necklines. I don't think you'd find skin-tight jeans that you had to put on with a shoehorn at Ephesus. They were careful about their speech and careful about their habits. And so you didn't find the people of the church at Ephesus in the questionable haunts and and people hanging out with the boys after work at the watering holes. So here's a church to be commended for their morality. They live in a city that's more perverse than anything that we've ever seen before. I mean, even San Francisco couldn't hold a candle the way it was in Ephesus, an exceedingly immoral place. But they stood their ground there and they didn't surrender to the lust of the flesh. The second thing that I think we can see about the church is there is no compromise theologically. And of course, because they could take strong doctrine, that would keep them from compromising theologically. I want you to notice in verse 6, But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. There's a lot of speculation about what he means by Nicolaitans. Who were they? What did the Nicolaitans believe? What, what, What kind of people were they? And nobody really knows the answer to that question. There's some who have speculated and they thought that when, when the, uh, the church at Ephesus finally did go into immorality, that was led by these people called the Nicolaitans. Then there are others who say, well, uh, these were people that were the first ones to begin what we call a graded ministry. They separated the church into the, into the clergy and the laity and they believe that later on this is what gave rise to a hierarchy in the church and what we know today is the priesthood in Roman Catholicism. We don't know about that. I don't know what the truth of that is. But I do know this. They took Paul's warnings seriously. 
In chapter 20 of Acts, when Paul was ready to leave this church, he said, For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. So here they are, 40 years later, and they still take seriously what Paul said. So they weren't going to allow any bad theology in this church. They adhered strictly to the faith. And if you tried to come into this church preaching wrong doctrine, they knew to stand up against that. They pointed people out who did it. So they had a theological standard that they stood by. They kept that. And so you don't come into this church. You didn't come into Ephesus with anything but the pure gospel of Jesus Christ. So they had all these things. But the letter is not written just to praise the church at Ephesus. There's also some problems that were there. And so we see the Lord's recognition for their faithfulness, but we also see the Lord's rebuke for their faults. Jesus commended them for the things that went on good there. And we do have a gracious and loving Lord. He, he rewards us for our faithfulness. But when we stray off the path and when things start to go wrong, when there are faults that are to be taken care of, the Lord is not reluctant to rebuke us and to bring us back into the paths of righteousness. So he says then in verse number 4, Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Well, look at this church. I mean, this is a hard statement to take. Here is a church that's theologically correct. They're strong about their morals. They're busy about all the work that they do. There's lots of activity. They're tireless in their labor. They're determined in spite of opposition. How could this church be accused of not loving properly? Well, I don't think that he's really talking about here their love for other Christians. On the surface, at least what we see here, it looks like that must not have been a problem because here is a church that's standing strong against opposition. They're a cohesive group. They're locked together. And you really don't get that when there, when there are people bickering and fighting in a church. You, you really don't get that kind of reaction. Usually a church falls apart immediately. But not this church. Here's a church that's plowing straight forward. They're going ahead. They're going somewhere. But the problem is they forgot who's supposed to be doing the leading and who is supposed to be doing the following. So Jesus says there's a problem with your love. What's the problem? Well, I think first that their love was no longer exclusive. Jesus said, you have left your first love. And I don't think it means there again that they didn't have any love at all for the Lord. I mean, they had some love for the Lord, but there were so many other things that were going on. There were so many things to do in this church that Jesus was just sort of lumped in to all the other things that we have to do. So they're busy serving, but serving actually became their love. Serving is the love. That seems kind of odd, doesn't it? That serving becomes their love. But isn't that exactly what Jesus told Martha? You remember when Jesus went to the home of Mary and Martha, and Martha was so busy about doing all the things that she did. She's taking care of the guests. She's preparing all of the food. And Mary, her sister, was in the other room sitting at the feet of Jesus. Martha became indignant about it. She was very upset. And so she went to Jesus complaining. He says, Jesus, you need to tell Mary to get up here and help me with a little bit of what I'm doing. And remember what Jesus said to her? He said, Martha, Martha, you, you are just concerned about so many things. There's so many things that are going on. You, you're, you're so involved with all the peripheral things that you don't have time to take care of what's central or should be central in your life. He said what Mary has done, she's taken the best of all of these things and she's put that in the forefront and she's 
she finds the lesser things at a later time. And you know the message of that is very simple. You can get wrapped up in serving so that you don't have time just to sit at the feet of Jesus. You can be so busy serving that you don't stop to worship him, you don't stop to adore him, and you don't draw strength from him. You ever done this? Those of you that are workers in different areas of the church, have you ever found yourself preparing Sunday school lessons, getting ready for the next church function that's going to happen, coming to choir practice and doing all those things, and you do them and you do them and you do them because that's expected of you? That's what's just what church members do. And so you just keep on doing, and you've been so busy working that you really haven't stopped to commune with the one that you're supposed to be serving. That's a problem. Now, here's how it uh, applies to the Ephesian church. You have to take time to pray and read the Scriptures. You have to spend time with the Lord Jesus Christ because if you don't, you're going to lose touch with the one that you've been doing it for. And you can actually fall in love with the serving and, and, and not being in love with the one that you serve. So the Ephesian church ended up that way. Here you have a very orthodox church. They're as orthodox as they can possibly be. They have every observance down. They have every ritual down. They're doing everything just right. But the problem is they are mired in cold, dead orthodoxy. And when that happens to a church, you can get very, very churchy. You get very, very churchy. I mean, you've got a lot of activities, a lot of things going on. You get churchy, but you don't get very excited. And so you can preach sermons, and you really don't care whether anybody gets saved. It's just you're carrying on the work of the church. So these are things that you have to keep in balance. You have to keep the doctrine right. You have to be morally pure. But you can never forget that the purpose that we have right here is to promote the name of Christ. And it's not just that we have sound doctrine, but we also have to be converting sinners. We have to be converting sinners from the darkness of, the, uh, of this world into the light of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. So here's a church. Simply, they've just cooled off in their excitement towards reaching people. And so when a church cools off in its spiritual love, it's not long before that love gets replaced with all kinds of different worldly things. And so when that happens, the next thing that happens in a church is worldly compromise. Next comes the loss of doctrinal position. And then after that comes the loss of true spiritual influence. And isn't that exactly what we see in churches today? Churches have fallen out of love with the Lord. And so they've started to bring the church into the world. And they've tried to satisfy what people outside want. So there's no more doctrine in the church. There's no more strong teaching. And so church just becomes the social club that everybody attends. And nobody stands up for the cause of Christ. So when your love for Christ is not an exclusive love, it won't take very long before the church loses everything. Now, in just a minute, we're going to see how that plays out for this church. But I want you to notice, secondly, about their love. Their love was no longer expectant. In 2 Timothy, Paul says, Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that that love his appearing. All of the works that we're given to do as Christians are to occupy us until Jesus comes. And so there is an expectancy about it. There's an urgency about everything that we do because the way that we are to proceed in our Christian lives is we're to keep one eye on that plow and one eye on the sky expecting that Jesus will come back. 
But the problem is we take both eyes and put them on the plow. So the only thing that we see is the work and making sure that the work gets done and we lose the fear of the coming of Christ. So what happens? Sometimes the preacher has to pull out a message on the second coming. Every few years he has to remind people, yes, Jesus is coming back. And he may preach a sermon like I preached this morning so everybody will get that back into their mind again. Yes, Jesus is coming back. But the truth of the matter is, most of us as Christians, we become so resolved that because mom and dad didn't see it, and because our grandparents didn't see it, and and on and on and all the way back, people that that we know and people that have gone before us, our ancestors, whoever it might be, they didn't see the second coming of Christ, and so we are convinced we are going to die also, and we won't see it. He's not coming back before we die. And so we've lost all that expectancy. You know, but somehow you never get that feeling when you read Paul. You don't get that feeling when you read the other New Testament writers. There's always the expectancy in what they write. I really do believe they thought Jesus was coming back in their lifetime. And is it wrong for them to think that way? Absolutely not. They believed he was coming. Uh, They believed in the imminent return of Christ. And that is what kept them going. That's what strengthens you. Keeping your eye on the fact that Jesus is coming back. And even if they did die... They knew that it was immediate entrance into fellowship with Jesus. But many Christians have lost sight of that. And so very few of us, and I would say probably all of us, go day after day after day, and we wake up every single morning, and we never think this is the day that Jesus may come. So more often than not, we think that, well, things are going to go on just like they always have. Jesus knew exactly where that apathy would lead. And so he includes in the message verse number 5. He says, remember therefore from whence thou art fallen and repent and do the first works. Or else I will come unto thee quickly and will remove thy candlestick out of its place except thou repent. And so what we have here, number three, is the Lord's reference to their future. Here he says is what will happen to the church. If the church does not turn around, if it doesn't get back to that same kind of fervency that, that, that affected the whole economy in, in the city of Ephesus, then this is a church that's of no use in the service of God. And do you remember that as well? What happened when Paul preached at Ephesus? I mean, there were people that got saved. The Bible talks about how they gave up their sorceries. They gave up their magical arts. People stopped buying the trinkets and the icons and all of the religious items that the silversmiths have made. And it really impacted the entire economy of that city. And it angered the merchants in the city of uh, of Ephesus so much that they wanted to get rid of Paul and Christians. There was a riot that took place. And this is what Jesus is saying to them. You need to get back to that kind of love. You need to get back to the kind of love that other, can, other people can see in you so that either it does one of two things. It convicts people, it, it, it pricks their hearts and convicts them of the message of salvation or, or, or it provokes them into persecution. They're either going to love you or they're going to hate you. And you'll find out this to be true, that if you're standing for Christ and if you're preaching his word, either we, you will convert people, that'll happen, or they're going to hate you because of the message that you have. And Jesus said, you've got to get back to that kind of love. And if you don't have it, Baptist on the name of your door is worthless. So here's what he says to them. He says, either repent or be removed. That's a simple warning. But really, it's not so simple to understand. 
Now, we get the first part, repentance. I mean, most of us know what that is. Repentance means a change of mind. It means turn around, go the opposite direction, uh, go differently than what you've done. In other words, what he's saying here is you need to go back to what you were told to do in the beginning. You've got to go back to what a church is supposed to do. Get back to the proper motives for what you do. Have love and fervency so that you feel again that you're doing this very thing, that you're kicking down the strongholds of Satan. Get back to that. That part we can understand pretty easily. Repent. The second part's a little bit harder because what does he mean when he says, I'm going to come and remove your candlestick? Now, I think most definitely means that there's going to be a judgment on the church, some kind of judgment where this church would no longer be called one of the Lord's churches. So, there are many who think that, well, what he's talking about here is that a church would cease to exist in Ephesus so that there's no church there anymore that calls itself Christian. I don't think that he means that. I think he means that they could be a fully functioning group that has the name church over their door, and yet they're no longer really Christ's church. Did you know that the city of Ephesus has been in ruins for centuries? It's been gone for centuries. But did you also know that there has been... There have been churches around that area all throughout the centuries. Today, there's a shrine at Ephesus called the House of the Virgin Mary. Benedict XVI visited there in 2006. They call it Christian, but there's no Christ there. Christ has departed. The candlestick is gone. And folks, I, I, I kind of think that it wasn't long after Jesus said these very words that, that the candlestick went out. They call themselves Christians, but Christianity continue without Christ. And that is something I'm afraid that we see all over Roner Park today. We see it in Santa Rosa. We see it all across the country. And that are places, there are places that call themselves Christian, but there is no Christ there. Now, the question that we might ask then is, how serious error, how serious does the error have to be before Jesus calls a church no longer his church? I've got some ideas about that. We might discuss it at another time. But here is the danger for a church that loses their love for Christ. When they stop loving the Christ that they preach, then it won't be long before they'll be removed as one of the Lord's churches. Now, finally, there's a warning about the future. He says either repent or be removed, but there's also a promise here. And he says that they can triumph with the promise of paradise. That's what he says in verse 7. He says, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Remember when we talked about the tree of life? Back in the very first sermon that, that I gave you on Revelation, we were making comparisons between the book of Genesis and the book of Revelation. And we talked about that tree of life. The tree of life was in the Garden of Eden, and we remember Adam sinned, and so God said, you can't eat of that tree of life any longer. So God cast Adam out of the garden, and the reason that he did was because if Adam partook of the tree of life, he would continue to live forever under the curse. So God says, you can't eat of the tree of life. But what did Jesus come to do? He came to lift the curse. And everyone who believes in Jesus is an overcomer. John says in 1 John uh, chapter 5, Who is he that overcometh the world, but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God? Now, the promise that we find in Revelation 2 verse 7 is that overcomers will once again be able to eat of the tree of life. 
Only this time, we're not going to go back to Eden to eat, in that, eat of that tree. This tree is now in the paradise of God. And what he's talking about is heaven. There's a tree of life in heaven. And if you are a true believer in Jesus Christ, you are an overcomer, and you'll be permitted to eat of that tree of life again. In Revelation 22, verse 14, it says, Blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. That's a verse we're going to get, off, get to way off in the future. That's a long way down the road when we get to Revelation chapter 22. But I want to leave you with something else. I'm not going to discuss the tree of life now. We'll get, we'll get to that when we get to these verses in, in Revelation 22. But he says here, Blessed are they, this is in Revelation twenty-two fourteen. Blessed are they that do his commandments. Can anybody tell me what the greatest commandment is? I'm not going to ask you to speak out, but I'll tell you what it is. I mean, some of you are saying it. Jesus said in Matthew 22, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. So is it any wonder then that Jesus said to the church at Ephesus, I have somewhat against you because you've left your first love? Because when you leave this love, it means that you've broken God's greatest commandment. We don't want to be a church that's guilty of that. We don't want to break the, the, the word's greatest commandment. So it's no wonder that Jesus said to them, I have somewhat against you. Now folks, Berean Baptist Church does not want to be a church like Ephesus. We don't want to lose our love. For sure, we want to keep busy. We want to keep our doctrine right. We want to be theologically correct. We want to do what God wants us to do. We don't want to take our eyes off of Jesus. And we always want him to be our first and our exclusive love. And if we do that, then we'll never have our candlestick removed. I think that's a promise from God. When the, when the light goes out is when the love is gone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time we have to spend together. And as we go through these second and third chapters of Revelation, there'll be lots of things that are unpleasant to speak of, things that will step on our toes, things that will get to us right where we live. But Lord, help us to accept them and correct the errors that we have in our life so that we truly will not leave our first love. Bless in this invitation tonight. Bless your church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.